The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 159. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Thank you, Sal. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the first season Discovery episode, What's Past is Prologue. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Folks, please share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow this community of listeners. It's been growing great, and we love to hear from new and continuing listeners all the time and uh, we, we we hear that we're reaching more folks and that's entirely because of you you are helping us grow and we really do appreciate that uh so this is the as i said the first season episode what's past is prologue continuing the mirror universe arc of discovery being over there and uh jimmy could you give us a quick recap of this episode the story so far loathsome gerald has been caught observing the sun through a telescope and his squint is now permanent yeah that's not actually this episode uh that's rawlinson's some of our british listeners may recognize that's rawlinson's end by the vivian by the uh british writer and eccentric vivian stanshall he always thought the most interesting part of the story was the the story so far recap and uh and he wrote a bunch of recaps like that so in the, so this episode is basically an action episode with some speech making thrown in so not a lot happens. Uh on board the Emperor ship in the Mirror Universe, Captain Lorca reunites with his followers and stages a coup against Emperor Giorgio. Lots of people die as a result, but Lorca succeeds. Lorca asks Burnham to join him on the dark side so they can rule the galaxy together, <laughs> but she says no, that's impossible. <laughs> Meanwhile, the crew of the Discovery works out a plan to destroy the mycelial reactor glowing ball thingy at the heart of the Emperor's ship. To do this, they need to bring down the containment field around the central orb, they need to shoot the orb with photon torpedoes, and it's down. So this is basically Star Wars A New Hope, (laughs) only with a much larger exhaust port. Or, no, no. It's Return of the Jedi. It's totally because no. they have to fly well, into uh, the middle of the ship. That that brings me bring. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. They, they fly into the middle of the ship. In any event, this destroying the reactor will stop it from poisoning the mycelial network and destroying all life in all universes because the stakes have to be super cosmic. In the end, Michael and Giorgio stage a two person counter coup against Lorca and very improbably win. The new emperor, Lorca, then plummets down the reactor shaft and is disintegrated <laughs> by the glowing ball at the center. The Ewoks celebrate on uh, the forest moon. Michael grabs Giorgio against her will, and they beam over to the Discovery together. Discovery blows the reactor ball thingy, and they ride the shockwave back to the Prime Universe, 
where they discover they have overshot by nine months and the Klingons have apparently won the war. The end. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks for joining then, us. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, Lorica will inhabit a clone body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have this wayfinder back to the mirror universe. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. I, you know, until now, I never realized how much this episode is basically Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi with with a little Stephen Moffat, uh, the whole universe is going to be destroyed. And it's not even just the whole universe. It's all universes ever and ever and ever. Yes, everything. And we have to save everything that ever existed. So let's jump into this. Oh, man, my mind has been blown. Let's jump into this one. Uh, So we find out that so Lorca, he he reunites with his mirror version of Landry, his former security Mm -hmm. chief that was killed by the Tardigan. Was it she killed by the tardigrade? Yeah, I forget what it was. Yeah, it's been yeah. a while. Uh, but his who mirror, cares? Yeah, who cares? Uh, she gets her back. They go. They find out the mirror Stamets. He's the one who sold out Lorca. Now, remind me the most recent season, season three of Discovery, when uh, the Emperor goes through the Guardian of Forever and mm-hmm. sees yep. the events preceding this. That Stamets dies beforehand, yes. right? So she changes that that history. And okay. that history has changed anyway because she dies before all the events of this. Yeah, As right. Carl says, there are so many versions of us. Right, that's true. Okay, so all right. So I was trying to remember it because he is part of the plot, and so she kills him in yeah. that. He, he's he's, part of the he's plot. this series Rory, the man who dies and dies and dies. <laughs> yeah, there okay. you go. Uh, we also find out what happened to the prime Lorica. Uh, they were swapped. They swapped places. When they both beamed up to the Baran as an ion storm hit the Mirror Baran, uh, which is what happens in the original Mirror Universe episode when Kirk and crew are beaming up to the Enterprise in the midst of an ion storm and they swap places. So remember, folks, no beaming during ion storms. That's uh, an official <laughs> Unless you're in an emergency explody ship and need to get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> just that you're just going to end up somewhere unpleasant. Uh, so, uh, we get a thinly veiled sermon about oil consumption short-sightedness uh, yeah. from Stamets yeah. and, and that. Oh, my gosh. How could, how could Terrans be so short-sighted as to poison their, their own universe? I'm like, gosh, can, can we? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also it make, it's made clear that Lorca isn't going to be a better emperor. He's not going to be the he, – he's, he's holding it, this coup. He's, he's – He's replacing her in order to be the more twisted, evil emperor. Yeah, because he thinks he thinks she's too weak as an emperor. Yeah. She's been letting aliens do too many things, and it's weakening the empire. This is a humans-only empire. Yeah, she's right. so fuzzy. Well, and, and at least humans only in charge, and she's, yes. like, relying on them and letting them have more roles. Right, mm-hmm. right. We find out that this orb that's powering the Karen is a mycelial reactor. That's poisoning the network instead of working in symbiosis or something along those lines. So this whole mycelial network thing, which mm-hmm. is it comes out of nowhere. It's never been in Star Trek. It, it and it can't be in, in future Star Trek, you know, and TNG and all this stuff, because those have already been created. It, it just feels like this huge MacGuffin that we've dropped mm-hmm. into the middle of Star Trek. I I don't well it does but i don't know that i have a problem with that because every series every new series of star trek needs to contribute something new to the mythology yeah. otherwise why do it 
Yeah. And this is one of their efforts. It can it can be used in future Star Trek series. It just can't be used going backwards. Just like there are loads of things in Next Gen that couldn't be retrojected into the original series because it was already completed. But N- Next Gen and Deep Space Nine both introduced lots of new pieces of lore. Right. Well, yeah. it's and, and to be honest, after this season, it's there because they still have the spore drive, but that's never talked again. We never hear about right. it again. It's just it's there. Well, I, I, I take that back. Once once they get uh, they Q, use it, they use yeah. it. But I mean, once once they get get uh, they resurrect Culber, then you don't hear about it again. It's it's done. Yeah, well, they do continue to use the spore drive. That's use in it. season three right. of Discovery. They're hopping. That's why they're they, the Federation lets them return to active yeah. service is because they can hop all over the place and get your pizza there in thirty minutes or less. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. What what but I mean the, is what I mean though is that it's not a serious plot point. The actual yeah, the mythology mycelium of, network yeah. is just kind of it's there and used. As, it's it's how the spore drive works, and that's basically right. it. And that's not uncommon for um, for science fiction to introduce a concept and really dig down early on on how it works, and then it becomes just as invisible as your house's thermostat. You know, you don't really yeah. have to think about it after that, right? Unless you're Stargate SG One, where we're continuing continually expanding the mythology of how the gates work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think my thing is it's 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 the fundamental problem of doing prequel series. Enterprise had the same issue, which is you know you 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 have all of these other series and all of this you know dozens of episodes of other shows that are post dated this internally and they try to retcon like because discovery disappears and goes in 1000 years in the future which actually I think is probably the best thing you could do for discovery frankly is yeah. is is put it in the future and then we can have all new things and not stop worrying about why this doesn't fit uh into the world we know and messing with the world we know. So I, 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 I appreciate that. But I also it's, this is my little rant against prequel series. I'm tired of yeah. mining oh, the past. Man. Let's go into the all future. Those, all those World War II movies, they're so – I mean, <laughs> you know how it's going to come out. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all those it's, it's Civil War movies and Revolutionary War movies and – I mean, come on! All these prequels—they're just—they're yes. just killing the film industry. You can't <laughs> just, do those. There's too yes. many problems writing about things in the past that we already know the outcome of. Well, okay, so the, yes, that is one way of looking at it. But this, the, yeah, it, this is the problem. Here is is when you're dealing in a fictional universe, you don't have the constraints that you do when you're dealing with real history, which is you can't. You can't have the Nazis win or the, you know, the well, you Japan if you're win. Right, ultra, alt universe, no. but yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, but, yeah, but it's it's all just right. It's all just challenges to the writer. In order to have a well constructed story, it has to exist in a universe with rules, mm-hmm. and otherwise, it's just an incoherent mess that's just some kind of wish fulfillment fantasy or torture fantasy or whatever it may be. It in order for a story to work, it has to exist in a universe that has rules that you can test but not break. And in a prequel, you just know some of the rules going in. And right. and if you're a good writer, you can work within those rules and you then use them to generate good story. An example of that is Deep Space Nine. Now it's not a prequel, but they got a studio mandate, you will take Worf. Right. And that was not part of their plan. But one of the rules of Deep Space Nine suddenly became Worf is now going to be a main character. 
Mm-hmm. And Ira Stephen Burr and the crew said, "We're go- and the writing crew said, okay, we're going to own that and we're going to turn it to our advantage. Right. And that's what a good writer does with the limits that are in, with the rules that exist for the universe. In the case of, I would actually look at prequels and say, one of the nice things about prequels or other stories set in the past, which is like what a World War II movie is, is you already have a bunch of the rules handed to you. Right. You don't have to make them up. That's an opportunity. Yes. I guess my, then my complaint is, is that how often they suck. The writers yeah. don't follow the rules that they that they should be following, whether it's the Star Wars prequels or Star Trek prequels, or and, which is why I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what happens with uh, Strange New Worlds, mm-hmm. given how much we like Pike, and seeing if they can do a better job with that. Well, and I'd argue that both Enterprise and Discovery, in in their ways, were able to retcon things that were redu- introduced in TNG and DS9 Voyager back into TOS. They were able right. to fit it into that. Obviously, yes, you can't go back and recreate TOS, but you can use a prequel to bring these things into it that we know now that we didn't know at TOS. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And and I don't have a problem with the technology stuff that people get like, oh, how could they have holograms? It's nineteen it's two thousand and tens versus yeah. the nineteen sixties. Just right. deal with we, it. We've 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 talked about it before. I mean my, yeah. my big issue with Discovery is more of the the things they chose to to focus on than it is the mycelial network and things like that. Yeah. The ever expanding cast of weak, vulnerable characters. Exactly. Let's, let's all work together. Togetherness is the important thing. Anyway. (laughs) Because we're all too weak to tell interesting stories on our own. Exactly. Uh, hey, it's our our occasional discovery rant sessions. <laughs> well, yeah. Speak, speaking of characters that we we don't really know at this point, Arium actually plays a role, and this is Arium number one, uh, yeah. Sarah M- Midich, who plays Lieutenant Nilsson in later seasons. So at least right. that was interesting that one of the characters that we had absolutely no knowledge of suddenly actually gets some part to play. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting rewatching this series after having seen the other two. It's like I kind of know who all these anonymous bridge people are now. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they were chronically, tragically underdeveloped in the first season. They were just faces, and I didn't even mm-hmm. know their names. But now I, uh, okay, this is, yeah, okay, she's the one who later gets the trauma, and she's the one who later gets blown out the airlock, and yep. there are these <laughs> other two guys that haven't really had any development yet, but at least I know who they are. Yeah. In fact, they're more, in this season, their most interesting appearances are when they're the Mirror Universe bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> but Yeah. So speaking of uh, bad guys getting the 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 the, the heave ho, uh, uh, there's a scene where Lorca has taken the throne room. He's got the big sword. Uh, they've got he he shows Mirror Stamets the trap door because of course if you're an evil emperor you have a trap door in your throne room to to mm-hmm. the a place to kill people. Um, a la Jabba the Hut, and he's he kind of I'm going to drop you right into your orb that you created. Oh, but nah, I'm not going to bother. I'm going to dis- well, disintegrate says- you instead. Kind of poetic, isn't it? You, yeah. The a scientist being destroyed by his own invention. But I've always yeah. hated poetry. I'm going to kill you another way. Yeah. <laughs> right. They, and then drops him in there anyways. <laughs> well, it, it's it's Chekhov's trapdoor because they're showing us the trapdoor yeah. because that's Lorca's eventual end. Yeah, so. we need to see it because they're going to use it at the end of the episode. Right. Yeah. Not Chekhov from TOS, but the other playwright. <laughs> anyway, uh, th- we have Plays this whole thing. were of- invented in Moscow. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, Lorca has this th- thing throughout where he wants Burnham to join him. Like this whole, 
he he pulls his punches throughout because he's got this whole thing like it's he wants Burnham by his side and yep. I'm not I'm not sure both, they ever worked that out. Both Giorgio and Mirror Lorca have irrational emotional attachments to Michael Burnham. Mm-hmm. And Lorca is using Giorgio's attachment to Michael to his advantage, but he is just as irrationally attached to mm-hmm. her, if not more so. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, they they, they kind of they kind of hang a lantern on that where Burnham says, you know, my mirror version betrayed you and I betrayed my Giorgio and I'm not going to let that happen. You know? Yeah. There's this, she's got this weird line where Burnham is talking to Giorgio and she says, both versions of me betrayed both versions of you. Yeah. And I'm going, wait a minute. Okay. So prime Burnham betrayed prime Giorgio when she got mm-hmm. her killed at the battle of the binary stars. And Prime Burnham has now betrayed uh, Mirror Giorgio uh, for mm-hmm. through her role in Lorca's plot, and Mirror jo- Mirror Burnham betrayed Mirror Giorgio before we ever got here when she right. sided with Lorca. Yeah. But when did Mirror Burnham ever betray <laughs> Prime Giorgio? They never met, right? So this I, line doesn't seem to work. I mean, I, very simple square of opposition here. Yeah. One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> One of these things just doesn't, doesn't belong. <laughs> See, I, I think, of course, this is showing the weakness of the writing because what what it, it seemed to me, at least, what they were trying to say is, like I said, where the prime Burnham betrayed prime Giorgio, mirror Burnham betrayed mirror Giorgio, and there wasn't the cross between from prime to mirror. Right. But it does. That's not what she says. But that's, I right. think, what they're trying to say. Is right. They don't, the two of me betrayed the two of you in our different universes, but they didn't say that. Right. Because right. writing. Writing. Uh, so there was an intentional diehard homage in this one with, uh, the, the, in fact, they, they came out and said it, the writers said it, that uh, Burnham crawling through air ducts and the conversation between uh, Lorca in, in the control room and Burnham in the ducks and halls and various things uh, was supposed to be a John McClane Hans Gruber thing. Okay. Uh, although we never get a yippee ki from Burnham. Yeah, which... I, I, was say, <laughs> I, I thought I remember hearing that line at one point. Oh, wait, no. Yeah. Like, it, right even to the point where Hans Gruber falls from the 12th, 23rd story of the Nakatomi Plaza, you know, that's yeah. that's Lorca falling into the orb. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, Very... I didn't, I didn't, if that's what they were doing, it didn't come across that way to me. No. Yeah, it, well, it's crawling through air ducts is a is a Star Trek thing already. Yeah, so. it's, exactly. <laughs> you got you got to. I mean, have her take off her shoes and make baby fists on the floor or something, and that'll get it across. <laughs> you're doing yeah. the Die Hard, but crawling through <laughs> corridors and air ducts is like okay. You got to do more if you want it to be Die Hard. Uh, as right. I say, Star Trek uses them so often they actually named them after the designer of those air ducts, Jeffrey's tubes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We have uh, Lorca's speech about the Federation as a failed social experiment. Uh, apparently, uh, and it, Jason Isaacs and the writer Ted Sullivan worked together on this speech because they wanted to resonate with contemporary audiences as reflecting the worst of us. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, and there are Trump references in here, too, about we're going to yeah. make the empire great again and stuff like that. Yes. It's just so like on the nose, so contemporary politics. Like, what 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 I did like is Lorca's speech to the bridge crew of the Discovery, saying, 
my service with you, my time with you. I, I really value, I respect you all. Mm-hmm. And if I thought for a minute that I mm-hmm. could wean you off this Federation idealism, I would offer you jobs in a minute. Yeah. Right. And I like Which, that. It shows he yeah. really does respect them. He also interprets them through his worldview as like, you are a team of soldiers that I have molded, and I am proud of you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm yeah. sitting there going, yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, there is that, yeah, there, there is that moment. And I, I did like that. It, it makes Lorca more. Not completely cartoony. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah, exactly. You, a guy spending all that time with them as their captain is going to form some attachments, especially as he's role playing this. Yeah, if he was cackling evil Kirk, he would never have been able to bond with them. The fact he was able to impersonate a Federation captain, right? Albeit in wartime, mm. for that long shows he's got. He's not just a cackling villain. He's got right. more to him than that. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, we are presented with a no-win scenario in this one first. The, the, at first, they think there's no way out. The, the Discovery crew, they have to sacrifice all of their mycelium, and they'll be so close to the explosion that they won't be able to escape the blast wave. But Saru tells them, I, my threat ganglia are not saying we're about to die. So this- I don't believe in no-win scenarios, so let's reprogram this Kobayashi Maru. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. The threat ganglia thing, like sensing they're about to die, is yeah. so they're psychic. I mean, is this what they see the future? The the that Saru's people, well, they could be. I mean, they established as of the second pilot of Star Trek that psychic powers are real, and some people yep. can guess, can you know, uh, predict the future to some degree. Yeah, but they've never explored that. They've explored telepathy much more. Yeah. And they've shown us telekinesis much more, but they've never really done much with precognition. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, would be the most logical explanation of what we see on screen with Kelpians. Yeah. But they make it sound like, I, I don't think they want to go to precognition on Star Trek. And they make it sound like this is some biological instinct that doesn't involve precognition but picking up on subtle cues in your environment and if it's if it's that then okay right. your threat ganglia are of no use here right <laughs> right, right. Well, they're not picking anything up and this is i think this is meant to be a parallel to the first episode of the first season where he mm-hmm. he talks about how my my species has been bred for millennia to to recognize death and i can feel it's very close Right, you know right. This, that whole speech we mocked mercilessly and rightfully so when <laughs> it first came out. Um, but it, this is meant to be kind of that parallel of you know before the war he he said I can sense death is coming very soon. Now he's saying well I can't sense anything so we're fine. Mm. Uh, so so after- great way to deflate the drama in a scene. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So after Lorca is dead, uh, why? I asked myself the first time I watched it, why doesn't Giorgio just betray Michael, take a discovery, take it for his her own, all that sort of stuff? There's a line in there because she knows she's a defeated emperor and therefore she cannot survive on yeah. the throne here after this. Mm-hmm. So I get that, but yeah, it it's clearly they wanted Giorgio to go to the prime universe. That's clearly yeah, why right. they did it. Yeah. But also she's got it. I mean, there's more on screen justification than that. Not only does she know she's going to die if she stays here, Giorgio knows. Mm-hmm. 
she also has an irrational attachment to Michael. And I mean, people from this universe, even though they're bad, they can act honorably. And if she took the discovery, what's she going to do? I mean, even if she could, if she Mm -hmm, could regain her throne and she kept the discovery, that's risky because this is the existence of the prime universe and its federation is an A number one double plus top secret in the mirror universe. You don't want anybody to know that this thing exists. She killed all of her lords but one in in the previous episode to keep the word from getting out that the prime universe and the federation exists and so she is not going to want to keep this big huge hunking piece of the federation and all its people around even if she killed all the people right you know sending crews over to this thing i mean the, if if you were going to do anything you'd destroy it but since burnham just mm-hmm. wants to leave okay let her leave that's the easy thing Right, and right. And it's a different circumstance from the Defiant uh, in the Enterprise episode, you know, or the Mirror, Mirror Universe where the Defiant comes back through the Trollian web. And that's kept because it was a technolo- technological advance for the Terran universe. Mm-hmm. But well, this Enterprise is equal. Yeah, well, yeah. The, but the, the Terrans were I, I experimenting with Spore Drive as well. I don't, yeah, they had their own Spore Drive. I don't know that they even knew about Discovery spore drive. I don't think they That's ever true. saw Discovery use it. Right. And also look at how great keeping that Federation ship around worked the first time. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That that led to Empress, Empress Hoshi Sato. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh at the end, but Burnham does doesn't want uh Georgia to sacrifice herself and jumps onto her as they're transporting, which we all know is a terrible idea, but she did it anyway. We saw it happen and, in Voyage and, Home. And they materialize at two different spots on the pad. Yeah, that's yeah. something that's never happened before. No. That uh, separate streams. Yeah, like we, like I said, we, we saw it in Voyage Home when, um, uh, what's her name, Jillian, jumps on Kirk, and yeah. they get transported together. But uh, yeah, <laughs> apparently the, the, the transporter has a way of separating out the people, which is good. And at rearranging the end, their body posture so you don't fall over. Because the person you were hanging on to isn't there now. That's true. That's true. At the end, when we're seeing the spores filling the the engine room, and one green spore lands on Tilly and gets absorbed. Dum, dum, dum. Yep. What was I saw something that, referred to? Oh, that's that comes out in season two. What yeah, was that? Season that's two? how they that's how they get uh, Culber back because Tilly starts crossing over to the mirror universe and me, or to the spore universe and meeting mm-hmm. her friend. And it's like, we must find the captain, the one who is really, really white. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. That's, uh, that's right. That's right. Now I remember. So they get back, like you said, they're nine months later. Saru's first thing says, well, we, we overshot by nine months. Oh, Mr. Bryce, send a transmission to Starfleet. Uh, then he says, Mr. Reese, update our tactical map. Bryce says, there's no response from Federation, not even an automated one. Then how does the tactical map update? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> where does that come from? Like you scan the entire <laughs> galaxy and now you know where everything is? Like it's, oh, it's such a huge logical hole. They just they just tapped it to Wikipedia. It's not part of the Federation, so uh, it's fine. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wikipedia is owned by the Romulans now. How'd you like that? <laughs> Frangie. Um, it costs money. Any, yeah, anyway. 
<laughs> the Frank, you know, charging for Wikipedia access <laughs> and edits. <laughs> All right. Uh, and that's basically where we end things. Any last notes, Father Corey? Nope, not at all. Okay. Jimmy? So I noticed I noticed an evolutionary difference in I mean, there's more than one evolutionary difference between people from the prime universe, or at least people from our universe and people in the mirror universe. Not only are their eyes more light sensitive over there, they mm-hmm. have they don't have the instinct to not stroll directly into the line of fire. Because <laughs> yes. during all of the action sequences, whenever a door opens up, you yeah. have you have people from the mirror universe just, just strolling out into exposed <laughs> positions where they know they've got to know you're about to be killed. I can only conclude that, that the suicide rate in the mirror universe is astonishingly high because they apparently want to die. They are not doing the logical thing of let's peek around this corner or throw a grenade around this corner or right. protect yourself in some way and stay in cover. They just and it's not like you've got a bazillion of them and they charge out all at once. They just stroll into open view, knowing they're going to be fired upon. <laughs> right. So, I, I in my notes, I referred to it as stroll of the cannon fodder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's that scene where Owo, the mirror Owo, gets killed. Like she's sent out to send a message. It was kind of cool. The uh, all the the phaser rifle lights popping on in the darkness to show that they're all there. That was mm-hmm. a bit of a cool thing. That was a little bit like uh, Darth Vader's lightsaber on uh, in Rogue One lighting up in the corridor. So that was pretty good. I like that. But you're right. Yeah, they were all cannon fodder. They were <laughs> terrible. We, we'd And they the... knew it and owned it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they did. Anything else? Nope. All right. Let's wrap up that in the Mirror Universe of Discovery. Uh, we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Mona F., Frank R., Victor S., Meg S., and Adam G., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of what's past his prologue? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the original series two-part episode, The Menagerie. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thanks, Tom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Tom, and long live the Empire. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember... I will die on my feet as fitting my station. 